guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 129. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now today, we've got a pretty special episode lined up for you because we are coming up on almost three years of podcasting now. We've got over 200 podcasts in the audiobooks (laughs) (laughs) and over 200 episodes it's fair to say that we have changed our minds on a few topics because as you grow older i would hope that you grow wiser and i think that's just a sign that as time goes on you continue to broaden your perspective on different topics and perhaps change your mind on a few things and jack and i are adamant that we will always stay open-minded so We thought that we would discuss a few different topics that we have continued to broaden our perspective on over these past few years, certainly gained more knowledge and insight into them. So starting off with this very first topic, meal plans versus flexible dieting. Let's chat about it. Great. So should we start off with potentially what we thought previously? Yeah. So what were our initial thoughts back in 2018 when we first kickstarted this podcast? Mm, So... I think our views have never been like one or the other, but Mm. they just have been slightly more biased towards one. Yeah. And in the past, I think we've, we looked down a little bit more on meal plans because we viewed them as quite restrictive and potentially they didn't allow enough intuition for certain people to be able to design their full day of eating according to their terms or incorporate as much variety as what we would might like and that definitely has changed now and I would say say our consensus now is that there definitely is a very beneficial time and a place for using a meal plan yeah and it makes sense because I guess our exposure to meal plans were those restrictive meal plans which did unfortunately cut out whole food groups and they weren't very well nourishing so essentially if someone was to follow that for a chronic time period you could argue that they could potentially even become malnourished, mm. right? Or if they're not consuming sufficient calcium, if they're not consuming sufficient iron, whatever it may be, just nutrient variety in general. Mm. But as dietitians, we are here to say that we can write up a pretty gnarly meal plan that's going to tick every single box. It's going to keep you well-nourished, happy. It's going to include the foods that you enjoy it's going to be pretty sustainable. And if it's followed long-term, it's probably more likely to lead to results in a more efficient time manner compared to just letting someone free ball it with flexible dieting. Yeah, hundred percent. And I definitely give most of my clients who come to me the option of a meal plan. And I give them three different options. I'm not going to go in, well, usually around three plus different options in terms of how we're going to pursue a nutrition approach, whether it be gaining, maintaining, losing, whatever it might be. And the meal plan is definitely one of those options. And it really just depends on the individual. So the benefit of a meal plan is is that you can just kind of follow it and not have to worry too much about what you're eating, how much you're eating, because it's all done for you. And it's done by a dietitian. So you can't really get anything better than that and you can kind of feel rest assured that it's going to be ticking the accuracy in terms of macro and micronutrients Mm. so that's kind of a big reassurance of meal plans the 
the downside of them is, is it, it doesn't allow much external thought. And I think I can speak for both of us in saying that as coaches, we want to educate our clients mm-hmm. and we don't see coaching as a forever thing. Like we expect as many of our clients have done, they ultimately, they let's say they, I've had clients who've been with me for over a year and then they are like, Jack, I've, I feel like I can do this by myself. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's exactly what... I think should happen. It's a very natural process. It's a sign that you've done your job well, if Mm. they feel confident taking the reins. Yeah. And I will say that's one of just one of the drawbacks of meal plans is that if someone has only been exposed to meal plans and then they try and do things themselves, like, do they know how to write a meal plan? Mm -hmm. Do they know how to incorporate adequate micronutrition and macronutrition? And are they going to be able to adhere to that? And if someone has only done meal plans, then and they've never exposed themselves to more flexible dieting approach, like counting macros, then, and I use the term flexible dieting very loosely. I just mean what isn't mm-hmm. meal plans. Like that's kind of what I mean by flexible dieting. Yeah. I think if you get the best of both worlds and if you can follow a structured plan, but understand the rationale and the reasoning behind that plan, mm. and also you feel confident that you can make modifications if needs be. So for example, let's say on your meal plan, it said every single morning you have 150 grams of Granny Smith apple, but you go to the store and oh Lord behold, they're out of Granny Smith apples and you have to buy a pink lady apple Mm. or you have to buy a pear. You don't freak out and then say, oh God, I can't follow the plan. Might as well go to McDonald's for breakfast. (laughs) You buy a different piece of fruit and you know how to make it fit within your calorie budget. So it's really important to have that knowledge behind you for sure. Yeah, I often use meal plans as like a buffer for the first period of coaching. Mm -hmm. So if someone comes to me and they don't have a background of tracking and that's something they want to ultimately pursue, but you can't just throw them into the middle of the road and be like, okay, here are your macros, go away and track. Like that's a very daunting thing for someone. So what I usually do is like an intermediary phase where we start off with a meal plan and I'm like, okay, download my fitness pal, have a go at it. I want you to actually track your meal plan. And it doesn't really matter how accurate they are with the meal plan because it's done for them. Mm -hmm. So like all they need to do is track it and develop that skill. And then I can look at it over time, that meal plan that they're tracking themselves and be like, okay, these entries aren't the best. You haven't weighed your apple in grams. You've weighed your apple in cups, which isn't particularly Mm -hmm. accurate. So for, and you should be using note tab entry for your apple, not some random generic, I don't know, other entry on (laughs) my fitness pal. So it's, I find meal plans definitely have their place. And I, I would say even more so for competitors when you want to keep things really consistent. Yeah. So, gosh, without a doubt, always having that knowledge and that skill of understanding what is in my food. So from a micronutrient and a macronutrient perspective and understanding how to track those things. But then also being able to follow a structured plan that still incorporates variety, but uh, but still incorporates flexibility. So Mm. I think that we like to use the term having a flexible but nutritious and structured approach. And yeah, along those lines of, man, having a structured plan during a dieting phase 
just reducing that decision fatigue and Mm -hmm. just reducing all of those variables that can just throw spanners in the works that can really just stress you out because someone could make the argument of, oh, I just want three macronutrient numbers that I can hit for the day. I'm pretty confident with hitting those accurately, but I want to feel like I have flexibility and variety in my diet. But then you see their scale weight data for the week. And because their food choices are always changing, their scale weight could be like a ping pong ball. You know, it's like boing, 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 boing. And sure, they might be hitting their macros and they could even still be hitting them with nutritious sources of food. But one night for dinner, they might have 200 grams of green beans as their vegetables. The next night, they might have 200 grams of cabbage. And after they have the cabbage, their weight spikes up by 700 grams. And I would argue that it's it's not worth the stress of having to deal with those crazy fluctuating numbers mm. on the scale. And this is me speaking from experience from my own past comp preps. So I would argue that it's really, really beneficial to follow a structured plan and still having nutrient variety within the space of an entire day but rinse and repeating day after day after day so that you can be really confident that you are getting predictable and accurate scale weight measures every single morning when you weigh in and they are representative of tissue change, not fluid balance or food bulk. Mm, Definitely. And I think it comes back to one of our recent posts on Instagram this past week where we said weight loss is a simple process, but Mm. don't confuse simple with easy. Yeah. And I think after working with clients for over two years now, Mm -hmm. that definitely rings true. And everyone does require a tailored approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When someone signs up, ultimately you just need to provide them with that level of education, knowledge. They need to feel independent in deciding what they eat, whether or not they're on a structured plan or not. And they just need to have a really good understanding of what they're doing and ultimately it just needs to be the most sustainable and realistic for them because mm. something can look really great on paper and something can work really well for one person, but it's not going to be the best, best method for someone else. And then ultimately it's going to be pretty worthless. And unfortunately that person's just not going to achieve their goals. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching the bodybuilding dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. But yeah, we've definitely swung the pendulum a bit from that flexible eating side of things, really just having a good understanding of macros, but then being able to decide what food choices you make as long as they're still nutritious and you have good variety. But we've kind of swung that over to more in the middle of having a really good structured plan, still ticking those boxes, but yeah keeping things more consistent day to day yeah and to put it into perspective i i probably still have more clients on counting macros flexible dieting than i do on meal plans because Mm -hmm. ultimately after someone's had their first meal plan they then graduate to flexible dieting yeah like that's how i like to structure it for myself yeah and give them the skills it just depends on the phase that they're in as as well like more lifestyle i think more of a flexible approach is a lot more appropriate depths of prep meal plans are a heck Mm. of a lot more appropriate and particularly just to reduce that decision fatigue just so that you're already so food focused, don't put another element on top of that. If you know what you're already going to be eating 
day after day after day, and literally you haven't really given yourself a choice, then that can majorly reduce decision fatigue and how much you're thinking about food. And you don't drive yourself crazy over little things like, ooh, should I have dark chocolate or peanut butter? Which mm. <laughs> I'm telling you, once you're in that seat, it uh, it's not very fun to drive. So <laughs> anyway, we're gonna move on to this next topic. This one, Jack, the thrust is a must. <laughs> <laughs> so explain what this might mean. So this is certainly relating to hip thrusts, and I'm sure everyone's heard this claim that the thrust is a must. And I bet someone could probably even go back to some podcast and quote me where I said, I don't like to say that I'm married to anything, but if I was married to something, it would probably be barbell hip thrusts. Mm. And I'll put both hands up and say, I used to be adamant that if you wanted to build the best set of glutes on this planet, you had to be hip thrusting. And I was pretty firm in my thought process that hip thrusts should be incorporated into people's programs if they really want to develop a strong set of round glutes. Now, <laughs> saying that something is a must, that's a pretty strong claim. Yeah, and it comes back to the previous topic as well, like saying that meal plans is a must or mm -hmm. flexible dieting is a must. I think if anyone says something is a must other than something like sleep or water, then you're in shaky ground. Okay, how about this? I'm gonna say no exercise is a must, but exercising is a must. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. How's that for some, what's that, a slogan? Yes. <laughs> We put that across the back of our chimney. Mm, your chimney. <laughs> oh, we share it. All right. Anyway, getting back to this. Is the thrust a must, Jack? Must you thrust? No. No? Why not? Well, it's the glutes is a, a large muscle group and there's more than one muscle that comprises the glutes or your bum. And essentially, it's saying, for example, that you need to do a barbell bench press to grow a chest. Uh, which just isn't the case. I'm not even doing a barbell bench mm -hmm. in my program at the moment. And I think it's very easy to get fixated on the barbell hip thrust because it's just one of those social media movements that kind of have risen to fame. And mm -hmm. there's no doubt that it's an amazing exercise. I have a lot of my clients on the barbell hip thrust. Me too. I still, I still do a hip thrust yeah. movement pattern. They're still awesome. But what mm. we're getting at is that you can still grow a really nice pair of glutes if you don't do barbell mm. hip thrusts. Yeah, and I think we're definitely not experts in the anatomy side of things, but there are three different regions of the glutes that we can look at, which might be more effectively targeted by different exercises other than just the hip thrust. So the glute medius, the maximus, and the minimus as well. Yeah, so you've got those three different regions of the glutes. And the awesome thing about barbell hip thrust is that you do have the potential to kind of target all of these three areas at the same time. So you could argue, heck, you're getting the most bang for your buck because when you're doing a barbell hip thrust, you can target the lower fibers and the upper fibers of the glute max. And if you actually put a band above or below your knees and you push your knees out during the exercise as well, you can target your glute medius too. And I have the minimus in there. Honestly, I'm not too much of an anatomy mm. expert to really go into how you're would, targeting the the minimus. Yeah, I like personally, I follow Coach Kasim mm -hmm. on Instagram. I think you should follow him too. He 
he just puts out some amazing concepts in terms of training and just debunks a lot of myths. And like after finishing prep, starting with AJ, it's been like a really major turning point for me in terms of how I look at training and look at training quality as well. And I've begun to implement it with many of my clients, well, all my clients as well. And yeah, I'm just, it, it just makes me look at things a bit more analytically. Mm-hmm. And for example, like putting the band around your knees during a hip thrust, it might lead to more glute med activation, but it ultimately it's an isometric contraction mm-hmm. for, the, for the medius. So like, is that even that beneficial? I don't even know. Maybe from a sensory standpoint, you might feel like you're working it more, yeah. but it's something that I would like to do a bit more research on. Yeah. And because it's isometric, which means that the muscle is staying at the exact same length the mm. entire time, just under tension compared to isotonic, where you're actually going through that eccentric concentric then there's an argument right there. If you Mm. wanna effectively and maximally grow your abductors and your glute medius, then perhaps using an hip abduction machine or doing some cable hip abductions or some monster walks, that's gonna be more effective than just putting a band around your knees during a hip thrust. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so if you don't have access to a barbell hip thrust or you genuinely just don't enjoy them, it's not like you have to say goodbye to an amazing butt. There's so many different ways to target your glutes. And again, I'm going to put both hands up and say that I used to program barbell hip thrusts three times per week for myself. But once I actually tapered that back down to once or twice per week, and in replacement of the barbell hip thrust, I started doing more lunge variations. So things like kettlebell Bulgarians, Smith machine lunges, my glutes have never been so big and round before in my life. And it's actually because I dropped my barbell hip thrust volume and I replaced that with other exercise variations that target the glutes in different ways. So that's why it's really important to understand the anatomy of the glutes. So when you're actually looking at the glutes and you're like, okay, cool, I want to grow the lower fibers of my glutes or that glute ham tie-in where if you look at an IFBB bikini competitor, probably an IFBB bikini pro, and they're super lean in their back pose, you'll see how their glutes kind of narrow down into their hamstrings. It's called like that glute ham tie-in absolutely beautiful but those are the lower fibers of the glutes and you're gonna grow the lower fibers of the glutes maximally by doing exercises that stretch those fibers and take them through a contraction so think of things like barbell rdls dumbbell rdls back extensions squats lunges and yes hip thrusts too they also work the lower fibers of the glutes as well but then you also have the upper fibers of the glutes. So the upper fibers of the glutes, unfortunately you're not gonna be able to maximally stimulate those through something like a squat or a RDL, but you can activate those through certainly a barbell hip thrust, but also things like kickback variations. And then like we alluded to before, if you want to grow your glute medius and your abductors so that like your glutes pop out from the side pretty much, actually doing abduction exercises. So using the hip abduction machine or doing some cable hip abductions or different variations. Mm, definitely, yeah. I think it's uh, it's very easy to focus on one exercise mm. like the hip thrust, but in reality, or just like the deadlift or like the squat or like the bench press, but it's never one size fits all or one exercise solves everything. Yeah, and that's the beauty of bodybuilding. If we looked at our programs, gosh, the exercise variety, and it keeps Mm. things so interesting and exciting. Yeah, so 
I just look at it now and I'm like, man, I'm, I've actually fallen in love with Bulgarians and lunges and RDLs and everything like that on top of hip thrusts. Like that's really how you're going to grow the best glutes. Like don't put all your eggs in one basket, but hip thrusts are still awesome, but they're definitely not a must at the end of the day. Mm. Cool. So what's the next topic? So this next one is talking about implementing diet breaks and refeed days. Wow. Okay. So I think again, similar to the first, well, I guess in all of them, we've kind of swayed more to one particular side and mm-hmm. we've changed our mind. So with this one, I think we definitely strayed more towards thinking that diet breaks and refeeds were absolutely necessary. And if you weren't including them, then you're potentially limiting yourself in comp prep. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've definitely changed our minds. We're not quite on that stance. I definitely think diet breaks and refeeds have a particular time and a place and a benefit, Mm -hmm. but it just depends like at what stage of prep you're in and like whether it suits the individual, all those kind of factors. Yeah. And when we first got on the podcast scene, one of the very first guests that we actually had on was Jackson Pios. I think Mm. maybe like episode 18 Don't quote me on that. I can't quite remember. There's over 200 of these, (laughs) but one of the very first ones, and this was when Jackson was still in those early stages of doing his PhD on diet breaks. Mm. And there was so much hype and excitement and everyone was depending on the results because, you know, there were so many scientific theories about them that made sense, right? Like if you raise your calories up to a maintenance level for a week, while you're in the middle of a dieting period, maybe it will have a positive influence on your leptin levels. Maybe it will influence your thyroid hormone. Maybe it will increase your metabolic rate, all of these wonderful things. And everyone was really excited about that. But turns out that uh, unfortunately, there's not enough evidence to truly back up those physiological changes. And it turns out that diet breaks and refeeds as well, probably a lot more psychological Mm. and just they genuinely just make you feel better yeah and long term it might help with adherence yeah we're not discrediting the benefit of the psychological Mm. improvement so like for example as tiara said it might improve adherence leading up to the diet break and after the diet break as Mm. well it's kind of something to hold on to and yeah i and we've kind of experienced that with our previous prep in that we, I think I did two diet breaks. You did one diet break. Mm-hmm. I did two or three high days, pretty much the whole comp prep. Mm-hmm. And yeah, <laughs> I am interested to try linear dieting next time. And mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty certain that AJ will have me on that from the get go. And I just don't think like the refeed, the refeed days, as I said, like I'm undoubtedly going to have a refeed day or many refeed days throughout my next prep, but they're not going to be scheduled. I think they're going to be more reactive in terms of, okay, you've had a very average week of training or you're just feeling absolutely run into the ground and you might implement a refeed day Mm -hmm. or potentially your food focus is insanely out of control and you might incorporate a refeed day then. Again, it's very, it's just tough and comp prep because like is your food focus out of control due to other external factors. Like have you been scrolling on Instagram, looking at food pages? So you have to know the individual very well to know if it's necessary or Mm -hmm. not. 
Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. But I, yeah, that's kind of my stance on it now. And I think there's just a time and a place. That's how I would sum it up, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm along the exact same lines. Personally, I think now after implementing diet breaks in the past and experiencing them, I think that they can be a double-edged sword. Like during the week, you feel pretty awesome, mm. obviously, because you've got heaps more carbohydrates coming in. Your glycogen stores are fuller. You genuinely just have a little bit more energy. Mm. Training performance is better. But then once that diet break ends and then you go back to lower calories, oh, it can it can really hurt. You know, mm. just having that like initial plummet. And also sometimes they're just overkill. You know, like you would schedule a diet break for seven days straight, but after the third or fourth, especially by the fifth day, you're like, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, like I'm kind of getting that itch to diet again. But mm. then once you start dieting again, you're like, God, this sucks doinks man yeah. like i got no energy in me so but that's then again just accepting that prep is goddamn tough and that's the reason why these things don't necessarily work from a physiological point of view because when you're in that state having a, a few acute days of a little bit more energy and even just just bringing you up to maintenance calories it's not enough to reverse all of the negative metabolic adaptations that you're going to experience from undergoing a six month comp prep. Mm. It's not going to reverse the decrease in your testosterone levels. It's not going to bring your leptin levels back up to baseline and above. It's not going to increase your metabolic rate, all these things. Hell, like it's probably not even gonna influence your quality of sleep that much. Mm. It's genuinely just, a little break in the middle of dieting that feels kind of nice while you're there, but there's definitely pros and cons. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And like I have a few different, quite a few different people on the cards for competing next mm -hmm. year if everything goes ahead. And their starting points are very good. Mm. And I think for them, I kind of know in advance that I potentially will be using some diet breaks, not necessarily for the adherence benefits, because these guys, I know they will adhere mm -hmm. 100% every single day, but more so if I need to slow down the rate of dieting. That's a great point to slow it down. Because mm. like we are starting 25 weeks out, maybe even a little bit longer, because it's both their first times competing, just to give us that little bit of extra buffer. Mm. And I, I personally, for bodybuilders or people who need to achieve that conditioning, I wouldn't, I would rarely go less than 25 weeks. Yeah. But if we do need to slow things down, like if they're looking very lean at like 15 weeks out, just chuck in like even a two week diet break and yeah. like, it's definitely not going to do any harm. It's only going to help. Yeah. Without a doubt. I think there's probably more of a case and argument for implementing refeed days rather than diet breaks. I think that's the best one for a diet break is definitely mm. just slowing down the rate of loss. And particularly if like, if you've got a few shows that are a few weeks apart, either if you're ready by the first show, then you're reversing into those following shows. Yeah. I guess technically that's depends what your terminology is, but that's yeah. technically a diet break if you're at maintenance. Yeah. But if you implement refeed days, that can give you a really good idea of how someone's going to respond in peak week to a carb up protocol. If you're doing something like a backload, 
for that week, if you've got them on five lower carbohydrate days and then you ramp them up to their maintenance calories through carbohydrates for two days, and you actually get a good visual look of, okay, how's this person going to fill out? You can kind of replicate what it's going to be like in peak week. Mm. So that's certainly the benefit of a refeed during comp. Yeah. But yeah, we've definitely changed our stance on that in that diet breaks can certainly be a little bit overkill. They're a hell of a lot more psychological than physiological. And once you're in the depths of prep, like you're going to need a hell of a lot more than just a few days at maintenance to reverse all that. It's going to take quite a few weeks, probably more like months. Mm. Yeah, and they're just, they're not mandatory, but they're a tool that you can consider implementing. Yeah, cool. So the one I want to finish on today, and we'll try and make this more efficient, Mm -hmm. is training set volume. Yeah, well, you're the man to talk about this. (laughs) It's an interesting one because when I first started training, I used to do like the typical four by eight to 10 for everything. Mm -hmm. And I would train six days a week doing that. And my intensity was high. Like I've always trained hard. It's just... I grew up with, well, I have four brothers, but I grew up with two twins because I'm a triplet. And as a result of that, you can imagine that I was competitive. And whenever I, we always played similar sports, especially me and my identical twin. We went to the gym together. I went to an all boys school. So naturally there's a lot of competitiveness. And I think that breeds like high intensity training. And I've seen home videos of you guys being very competitive, (laughs) playing handball as like little seven year olds. When you've got three triplets, you guys all want to (laughs) win. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it goes in all departments, video games, sports, (laughs) grades. Yeah. The grades. (laughs) Good and a bad thing potentially. But, um, yeah. So anyway, back to what I was saying. So I've always trained hard, but with the volume, I was just doing so much volume that I, I got injured so much mm. and it was for me the the weakest link is the lower back and my back like probably every every block of training it would usually end prematurely because I would be doing like an RDL or a bent over row and my back would just like it would twinge I would be out for again like four to six weeks of lighter training for it to heal and then I had a massive setback in 2018 because of my back and and I can pretty much attribute that. I don't think my execution was poor. It was pretty good for, for that level of training. Mm. But it was if I can attribute one thing to my higher risk, higher rate of injury, it's, it was due to probably the, the combination of very high intensity combined, combined with high volume. Yeah. So and people generally call that what? Overuse injuries? Overuse, I guess. Yeah. And I'm sure a physio has a proper name for it. Mm-hmm. But so something that I've done since I would say lockdown in 20, 2020, right? Yeah, yeah lockdown, lockdown 2020, that's when I really started to reduce the number of sets I was doing. So more so going from, I would say in 2016, I was doing more so like four sets for everything. And then maybe 2017, 2018, okay, going back down to like three-ish sets. And then 2020 and now more so two slash three sets for everything, mm. especially for the bigger compound lifts, pretty much two sets. And there is a bit of a give and take with this because some people just genuinely don't train hard enough to warrant two sets yeah. or they don't have enough. They don't have a good enough ability to execute specific movements to warrant two sets, or they're just not strong enough to, to need to do two sets. Like if you're benching, 25 kilos, then you're not going to build up enough fatigue potentially to warrant doing only two sets. Mm -hmm. So I have some clients on two sets. 
I have some clients on three sets. I, I rarely have clients on four sets for an exercise unless they're doing something like a chest fly or a lateral raise. Yeah, even I question too. I don't have any of my clients on four sets unless some people are in lockdown right now and you really have to take advantage of, okay, this person does not have mm. much equipment or weight at all. So yeah. let's try to get in a little bit more volume and they mm. can't do more than 50 reps for this freaking exercise. But yeah, four sets, man. I always argue if someone's in the gym and they're like, was feeling good, so I did a fourth set. I will always talk to them in their check-in about like, if you genuinely can do a fourth set, we need to be lifting heavier. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I guess let's challenge people. So if you're doing four sets for something like a leg press or a Romanian deadlift or a squat. A Bulgarian split squat. <laughs> yeah, four sets each leg. Dang, that's tough. <laughs> Try lowering your sets down to two and see how you go. Because mm, like, you put the pressure on yourself. You're yeah. like two sets. I've only got two opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> you got to listen to a bit of like Eminem, right? <laughs> One shot. You got, I'm giving you two shots. <laughs> anyway, so I think that's our challenge to you. And definitely when I've had my clients transition to two sets, they're like, oh my God, like it's, it's such a huge mind shift mm. because they're able to just focus so much more in those two sets rather than having to leave some. And even if you're not intentionally leaving room for the third set, like you'll be amazed at how much you are subconsciously leaving a lot in the tank on set one and two to be able to do that third mm. set. Yeah, but you do really have to get yourself aroused and psyched mm. up to really tackle that set if you genuinely want to get the most out of it. It yeah. can't be a case of like you're texting on Instagram and then you're like, oh God, better do my set. And then mm. you just sit down and just lift up the dumbbells or something like that. Like, Well, again, it's a skill. So like for, I can do that. I can be texting on Instagram. I can. I need to be in the zone, man. Yeah. Yeah. I need to be super focused because like, and I need to visualize it as well. Obviously I'm not visualizing myself doing a lateral raise, but I visualize myself doing some like a barbell bench press or a Bulgarian split squat, especially because I do full body every mm. single session too. So I'm usually only doing one exercise per muscle group per day. And yeah. I'm only maxing out at three sets per exercise. So I'm like, I've only got three shots to hit this muscle group once So how come today. you haven't transitioned to two sets? I know that I could for Bulgarians and Smiths, but I'm, <laughs> still, I'm still in that transition period. Cause like I'm, I'm, I'm strong in those movements and I, and they're obviously a single leg per one. So technically if I'm doing three sets, I'm actually doing closer to six sets, mm, which right? is like, yeah, big CNS. Fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's but you, sometimes you just got to take the plunge. Yeah. I just got to do it, but I just, it's still, I, I'll, I'll call myself out on it. Like I know that if I do only two sets, then I'm going to have to put a buttload of weight on that Smith machine. Like I'm probably going to have to put close up to like 75 or 80 kilograms mm -hmm. on that Smith machine. Right now I'm doing 70. Yeah. Well, we so, know that mechanical tension is the main driver. Yeah. So I'm still in that transition, but I'm far beyond ever thinking like, oh yeah, I'll do five sets of lunges. Like what a joke. And <laughs> this is what I love about Instagram is that we've been documenting our entire journeys a few nights ago, I was stalking myself and scrolling down because I was trying to find some post I did years ago. And then you find all these other stupid posts that you did and you're just mm. like, wow, I've come really far. But like, I'll look at back at old videos of me lifting and I remember doing that lift. I'm like, 
I thought that felt so challenging at the time, but I look back now and I'm like, dude, you could have put more weight on that bar easy. Like you look like genuinely you have so many reps left in reserve, mm. but I thought I was going to failure. Yeah. It's very interesting. <laughs> it is. I remember, I still remember my first Instagram post. Now I have like over almost 500, I think, which is crazy to think for me. I remember when I used to like boast about you doing RDLs at like a hundred kilograms <laughs> or 110. I'm like, my boyfriend's so strong. Look at him. He's RDLing 110. Now you've got over like what over 170 you've done before in the past. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, uh, that just doesn't even cross my mind anymore. I'm like, Oh, there's just Jack doing his thing again. Super strong. <laughs> So yeah, it's interesting, but that's why guys, if that's a reminder for anything, document your journey mm. for sure. Yeah. You'll, if you're not documenting now, not even, you don't even have to share it. Just take some photos. Like I always recommend filming yourself in the gym regardless, because like, I don't know, for an example, if you're not making a face while you lift, unless you have very good facial control mm -hmm. or you're using a lot of your mental energy to control your facial features then if you're not scrunching up your face, are you training hard enough? I'd say no. Every single time I post a, a video on, on Facebook of myself training, I always get people applying. Like I don't, <laughs> I just have no control over my face when I do. I almost feel embarrassed if I post a video where I have too much of a straight face. I'm mm. like, wow, people must think that I'm not training hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it is, it is genuinely hard to control, but definitely on YouTube, I can get those angles of you, uh, scrunching it when you're oh, trying yeah. to push those final few reps for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But guys, You've seen Jack transition to two sets. You'll probably see me transition to two sets. It's going to be first with Bulgarians and Smith machine lunges. It's genuinely just a matter of time. Mm, yeah. Cool. Well, let's wrap this episode up here and we'll finish on something that we learned this week. I'll well, let you go first. Okay. What I learned this week is that I learned how to master my own craft once again when it comes to my protein cakes, just when I thought I nailed it. But... As you guys know, if you listen to Road to 2023, we list our macros on there quite a lot. And right now my protein targets are certainly on the higher end, like around 175 grams per day. I could easily exceed 200 grams, no doubt. Freaking love the stuff. Protein is, it's quite nice. You know what I mean? Anyway, the reason why my protein intake is higher is because I love protein cakes. And I always thought that you had to add a certain amount of protein to these protein cakes to make them good, not just like banana blended with some flour so it's like but you've touted you remember back in the day when you touted my banana bread microwave banana bread no oh okay well <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to replay me that episode okay anyway i start initially i used to do 100 grams of flour 60 grams of banana and 30 grams of protein powder with 10 grams of raw cocoa then i realized oh wow i can actually go down to 20 grams of protein powder and it's the same then this week I realized that I could go down to 15 and I could go down to 10. So I can pretty much make the exact same cake texture with just 10 grams of protein powder. I don't need the additional protein powder. Definitely you need a little bit because I did try just like you said, when? banana bread. I actually tried it this morning. Oh. I tried just doing banana with wholemeal flour and cocoa. And again, it was just like cream of wheat with a banana blended in. It oh, didn't probably because you didn't, you added just too much water. That's why. Mm, I added the exact same amount. That yeah, well. Compared the, to just adding an additional 10 grams of protein. There's mm. something about the protein, man. There's something in the way. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> uh, 
I found out that I don't need as much, but I do need a little bit. But that's really good because that means that I can still enjoy my protein cakes, but I can slowly, slowly reduce my protein intake. Because that's the only reason that I've set my targets higher so I can eat the foods that I enjoy. And Mm. it's not a waste because VPA Australia are incredibly generous. And I would argue that we need to use up a lot of our protein. (laughs) We We have two cupboards in our kitchen. One is for food. One is for protein supplements. The protein one's actually bigger as well. It's huge, man. And like, there's just so much stuff in there. We should do a giveaway or something. Yeah. Yeah. We should be generous. (laughs) Anyway, Jack, what did you learn this week? So I learned that sometimes less is more. And especially, this is mainly regarding Instagram today. And not necessarily in terms of the amount of times you post but more so like the quality of your content. And I've like a good example is some of you might be familiar with like the carousels we'd be doing where it's like a big swipe where mm. we do some funny sort of image on the front with a catchy title and then people swipe to, to read all the stuff. And like I, to put it out there, I probably spend like three to four hours making that. Yeah. And, and then Tierra writes the caption and all that kind of stuff. But it's the three to four hours making it, drafting it. Mm. We're like brainstorming all of the ideas, everything yeah. like, but it is our quality of work and we care about it. So hundred mm, percent. And I enjoy doing it. I love making it, mm. but it can be disappointing when like you put that much effort into something and it doesn't do well. Yeah. And then you, you take two, I won't say what posts, but like, let's say we do take half the amount of time or even like half an hour to make another post and it does like five times better. Mm-hmm. And it's just the way of Instagram and something that we've learned, like we've never done any sort of social media courses. We're not social media gurus by any means, but I think we, because we've been on it for long enough now, we've just learned some tips and tricks over time. And I think you could put one minute into a post and have it do better than spending, I don't know, a week making some incredible post. But if it doesn't relate to your audience or if it's not humorous or educational enough or it doesn't catch that sort of trend that's going at the moment, mm. it's just not going to do that well, yeah. which which is a little bit of a shame. But yeah. There's I, no denying that it hurts, you know, because when mm. you put your time and your effort and we always, I would say we never produce poor quality content, mm. but it is disheartening. Some is just simpler than others. And yeah. yeah. And we genuinely always think it's a good idea, but it's mm. unfortunate when other people don't think so. Well, we, the thing is we have no idea. Yeah. The, the freaking algorithm, man. <laughs> like Instagram, bring back when you put out a post and people saw it. You know yeah. what I mean? Just the simplicity. Bring it back. Mm. Yeah. Well, on that note, like if you see... A carou- like I still will put the carousels out just not once a week because it's just not really worth it from a time perspective but if you do see a carousel from us make sure you like it and comment it and share it because they don't do as well as our other posts yeah which is unfortunate because I think they're awesome yeah they're, I love them they're fun man but I on that note if anyone's still listening to this hopefully <laughs> you are we would love some feedback on our social medias like we're bodybuilders man like we can take it okay we can take the truth give us some constructive feedback tell us are we doing something wrong or tell us if you're nice like what do you like about what we're posting or do you have any Mm. recommendations for ways that we could be more strategic with our social media postings or what sort of things do you like to see on instagram like hit us up with that because it is very interesting because i think that 
when I look at our business page, I'm so proud of it. It looks better than ever. And it just keeps looking better. Even with our personal pages, mm. I think that I'm, I look at my own page. I'm like, I'm genuinely really proud of the way this looks. I look at your Instagram page. I'm like, it looks great. But interestingly enough, it's not the best engagement we've ever received. That's probably quite natural coming off the end of a comp prep, mm. you know, let's be realistic. When you're not as shredded, people don't care about you as much. And that's yeah. just the way things are. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that. And I've heard it in pretty much every other person I follow. Like mm. I know Josh Bridgman said it, AJ said it before. Like when you stop doing prep, people just stop like listening or following as much. And that's completely natural. And yeah. that's, it's, if anything, that's why people do prep more often than they should is because they, they like that attention on mm -hmm. that social media. It creates a journey, but that's why we're trying really hard to create this like road to 2023 journey and still be just as consistent as ever, ever. And just, get people's attention through other mm -hmm. content methods. But even then, remember, the most important thing is that you are producing content that you like, that you are proud mm. of, and whatever you're putting out there into the universe, as long as you can genuinely say, that was my best effort, I'm really proud of that. I like the way that it looks, no matter how many likes it gets or whatever, like that's the main thing. So I always try to fall back on that because I'm still really, really proud of us. Me too. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for listening, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, repost it onto your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. If you're feeling generous, leave us a rating and or a review on the Apple Podcasts app. And we'll see you guys for Road to 2023. Bye.